Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am your hostess, Pat Rulo. We bring you hand-selected hosts, podcasts, and talk radio programming with listening options, 24-7 streaming, or listen on demand. We also feature one-on-one segments with important guests, people who have something to say that you need to hear. And if you have something to say and would like to be featured on the network, please visit speakuptalkradio.com for all of the details or contact us at PR at speakuptalkradio.com. Well, you are going to just love today's guest. I know it. He is author Ken Farmer. Ken didn't write his first full novel until he was 69 years of age. At age 78, he's currently working on novel number 34. Ken spent 30 years raising cattle and quarter horses in Texas and 45 years as a professional actor after a stint in the Marine Corps. Ken's writing style has been likened to a combination of Louis L'Amour and Terry C. Johnston with an occasional Hitchcockian twist. Now that's a combination. And in addition to his love for writing fiction, he likes to teach acting, voiceover, and writing workshops. And I am so looking forward to finding out more. So welcome to the network, Ken. Thank you, madam. I appreciate it. I'm anxious to find out what I did, too. (laughs) We will all be surprised. For sure. Well, I can't wait. (laughs) You know, you have had such a colorful and a fun past. Before we get into your writing, I always think it's important to go back and share who you were prior to writing it. It always gives a little peek into who you are today. So maybe just give us a little brief uh, idea about your acting days. Well, that's a scary part. Actually, I had a degree in theater. And But I had never done anything professionally until I was 32. I'm a late starter, apparently. I just enjoyed doing little theater and stuff. And, and I actually did, took acting because I figured, well, I'm going to be in the sales of some sort. To me, that just gave it a good intro into selling because everybody sells something, whether it's themselves or a product. I was dating a young lady in Dallas uh, who was a model, and I would occasionally go into her agency with her, and the agent would run up to me and say, you've got a great look. I could get you a lot of work. And I would kind of look around, and it seemed like all the guys that were in uh, her agency were, um, well, we might say a little light in the loafers. And I said, I don't think I fit in your program, but thanks anyway. I came in with this girl one day, and I'm in my usual dress. I don't mean a dress, but what I wore. Uh, Blue jeans, boots, cowboy hat, jean jacket. And she comes running up to me again, the agent, and says, You ride horses, don't you? I said, Well, I've been thrown off of one or two. Yes, ma'am. And she said, we don't have anyone in this agency that can ride. And I kind of glanced around at the pictures on the walls and said, yeah, I can believe that. And she said, I need to send someone to represent the agency for this Dairy Queen audition. Well, I hadn't told her I had a degree in theater or anything else. Didn't then. I just said, don't have any pictures. It doesn't matter, they'll take a Polaroid. Now, that'll tell you how old this was. And um, so I go in, and the director himself was casting, and he looks up when I walk in and says, Ooh, I love your costume. 
And now I don't know if he fell in love or got intimidated, but I and I got about a half inch from his nose and said, "Costume might rear end," and uh, I get the part. And so they had me introduce the Dairy Queen Belt Buster. That's the double meat, double cheese thing. And I think I made about $1,700 that day. And I said, they're going to pay me this kind of money to sit on a horse and eat a hamburger. (laughs) I can do this. (laughs) And so that was the start. And I did somewhere around 300 television commercials. I don't, I lost count of radio spots, 15 or so major features and TV, 50 odd TV shows, uh, uh, six Dallas episodes, eight Walker, Texas Ranger, uh, and so on, and so on, and so on. And I actually made enough to retire, which I did. And, um, that was it when I was, uh, must have been around 2000. Uh, as a actor, everyone who acts dabbles in writing. And, be, I mean, we'll go on an audition or something, and you look at, God, who wrote this crap? You know, I can write better than this. And uh, so we all kind of tinker with writing screenplays. And I had written some, and I also uh, started teaching acting, which I did for 17 years. And I taught what I call the organic system, which is the same way I write. I had written a screenplay based on a stage play by Leslie Jordan. He's a little four foot ten comedian. You've seen him a thousand times in sitcoms and so on. And he's from the Tennessee and and uh, I had called him. I said, Leslie, do you mind if I write a screenplay based on your stage play? He said, well, I sure can. He go ahead. And so I wrote this thing, and we did a lot of the scenes in it in my acting class. And long story short, uh, a friend of mine, Buck Steinke, who became my writing partner, he was a retired pilot from um, well, there, American, I guess. Now owned a gun store in, in Gainesville, Texas, and I went in to get a new handgun and take my concealed carry. And we had a, some friends of mine, uh, Robert Fuller from the uh, Laramie and um, the Wagon Train series, ER, and uh, Alex Cord, a film actor. They had also moved to the county where Gainesville is, and we were friends, and he had their pictures up, and he wanted one of mine, God knows why. Anyway, he uh, said, you right? I said, yeah. There is a screenplay. Can I read some? I said, well, yeah. And I finally brought one in, a couple into him, and he said, what would, would it cost to make these? And I told him, I, I brought in a Western and uh, this Rockabilly Baby, which was the screenplay I wrote from Leslie Jordan's stage play, based on the birth of rock and roll in the 50s, fictional look. And um, the Western was a little bit stiff. And he said, how about the uh, the other one? And I told him what that would cost. He said, let's do it. Well, all right. So what the hell? 
And so we did it. I wrote and directed, and he produced. It's called Rockabilly Baby, and it won a few festival awards, but because it didn't have any major theatrical leads, the distributors didn't touch it, so it kind of died on the vine. But a friend of mine from the Marine Corps called, who knew that I had uh, directed, written and directed the film, and he said, Kenny, I wrote a novel. Well, hell, good for you, John. He says, can you guys turn it into a screenplay? I said, well, sure, send it down. Well, he sends down this 732-page novel. I called him back and I said, why the hell didn't you just send War and Peace? And he said, well, it is what it is. I said, all right, well, you're not going to like it. And he said, why? I said, well, you've got 350,000 words here. A screenplay is about 25,000 words. Do the math. I'm going to cut out some stuff you're in love with. Well, okay, sorry. So 12 weeks later, we finished up uh, his uh, screenplay uh, entitled Verdict in Search of a Crime, sort of like today's politics. And um, he sent it to Disney, and they loved it. (laughs) And would you believe it's still making the rounds there? And this has been, what, 12 years? (laughs) But that's pretty typical. But when we finished, Buck and I looked at each other and said, hell, we can write a novel. Three months later, we finished our first, which was a military action thing, kind of like uh, Clancy, I guess you will, or Dale Brown, uh, Black Eagle Force, Eye of the Storm, and we got got it published. And But it took them a year, and then between that time, we wrote three more and decided to use our production company to start a publishing company. So we started publishing our own novels plus some others. And that's how that started. I love organic stories. Just one thing led to the other. It seems like it's all meandering around, but it's all very, very much connected. I want to know, what's it like to work with a writing partner? Most people can't do it. But we, since we had written and worked together with the uh, movie, uh, and he took my acting classes for five years, he knew how I thought. Mm-hmm. And so most people could not tell who wrote what. But my forte is, and or was, and still is, dialogue. And I kind of liken that back to being an actor for 45 years. I never did a movie or TV show in my life that we shot it the way it was written. Mm-hmm. We'd always change it. I would ask the director, do you mind if I uh, embroidery a little bit? He said, sure. <laughs> and I never had him turn down any change I made mm-hmm. uh, in my dialogue. So uh, dialogue becomes quite easy for me. And so when you write a novel, the only difference between a novel and a teleplay or screenplay is the dialogue is about the same, but you have to write down what the camera sees and what the sound engineer would hear for the reader. Mm -hmm. I call it, writing word pictures. 
Very, very Your interesting. Turn. No, yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, and I, <laughs> I, I really knew that that writing was a natural extension of what you experienced and learned as an actor and a director and a producer. And so there were just so many series, Nations, Black Eagle Force, Tale of the Ancient Republic, Bone and Lorraine, Silky Justice. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you're kind of Western meets sci-fi, meets romance, meets history. It's it's all in there. So let's... I did all that? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm, Who knew? I'm proud of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk about uh, the Bone and Lorraine series because that's interesting. Where these folks are accidentally transported back into time. Let's talk about some of those. Uh, Buck and I had created this character, Daryl Bone, based on a real guy, by the way, uh, who's six feet eight and two hundred and eighty-five pounds, and he's a small town detective, and he has a partner who is. Five foot three, Hispanic female, Lorraine Rodriguez. Well, it's sort of a, I don't know if you ever watched uh, Adam's Rib or not with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, but it was that kind of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And we had written a novel based on the spacecraft that crashed at Aurora, Texas. This is true. Uh, in 1897, April the 17th, and they buried the pilot in the local cemetery. This is true. There's a plaque at the cemetery from the state of Texas explaining this. They will not, to this day, allow them to dig it up. But since the, the guy was such a character, we wrote a novel called Legend of Aurora, which was a contemporary, and I had this thought about having them accidentally transported back in time. Now, I'm I'm a big believer in, in uh, Indian legend, myths, and lore, and that every civilization known to man back to before the Sumerians believed in portals where their gods came through from another place, another time, or another dimension. And throughout the world, there are these symbols of petroglyphs, if you will, of a open spiral, which indicates, according to our scientists, the location of a recurring electromagnetic vortex, which acts as a portal to space-time continuum. And even the the Navajo are very strong believers in that. Uh, you have the, the disappearance of entire races like the Anasazi in the 13th century in our Southwest. They just vanished. So did the Paracas uh, Indians in Peru uh, about 200 A.D. They just vanished, the entire race. And it is believed by many that they went through a portal. Well, anyway, Bone and Lorraine go on a fishing trip to Possum Kingdom Lake, which is west of Dallas. And uh, it is a, a lake built in 1931 by damming up the Brazos River. And it was very deep. I've 
scuba dived at it myself and fished. And so he takes Lorraine on a fishing trip there, and they park his car uh, there at the edge of the uh, the lake, and they look out, and there's a storm coming across the lake. They said, we better get some shelter. And she said, and you had to bring your convertible without a top. Said, well, I hadn't got to it yet. And so they find a cave, because that area is a sieve of caves, and they uh, take refuge, and at the on the wall of one of the cave of the cave they go in are like you know petroglyphs of buffalo and antelope and Indians and they spiral open spiral petroglyph and they go in just as lightning hits the hill and their skin kind of tingles and says whoa we met it just in time then here comes the rain and the fog and the storm and all of that. And it lasts about two hours, and when they walked back out after the storm passed, they looked around, and the lake is gone. She asked, where are we? And he said, no. When are we? He said, that's the same hill as when we went in, and that's the Brazos River down there where the lake used to be. We're before they built the lake. And as they've come to find out, they are in 1898. And um, so begins the adventure. Wow. Oh, see, now everyone's going to want to read this, the Bone and Lorraine series. That one was Steel Dust. Steel Dust. Dust. Mm-hmm. And where we introduce Bone and Lorraine. And then there's our eight Bone and Lorraine novels after that. And then they're still in your newest series, Silky Justice. Yes. Uh, yeah, Silky Justice, yes. Silky's Quest, Silky's Ride, and the one you're working on right now, which is Angel Justice. So Bone and Lorraine are, are still here with us. Right. Mm-hmm. They are. It's like a spinoff. It's like NCIS. You know, you got NCIS, then NCIS New Orleans, then NCIS Los Angeles. It's spinoff with different stars, but yet the originals do take a smaller role in the news stories. And Silky Justice is a a female Pinkerton detective. Now, the Pinkertons had many women detectives, the first being in 1854. And, of course, uh, Alan Pinkerton was the founder and creator of the Secret Service for the United States. But his... Detective agency continues on for many, many years, and many of the detectives were, in fact, women. And I love writing about strong female characters, and this particular one, her name was Silky Justice. Now, Silky, don't think cloth. That is a the Latin derivative of Celia, which means heavenly. And her middle name was Diane which means divine, and so basically her name meant heavenly divine justice. And her cousin? And her look-alike cousin, three years younger, uh, Silky, has um, strawberry blonde hair, long. But her cousin, who looks just like her in the face, but her hair is uh, sable, 
with red highlights, but her name is Haven Justice, which also means heavenly. Mm-hmm. So here you have these two women, call it a buddy story, <laughs> and they're both, she wants to be a detective like her older cousin. So she has to, to go through the process, uh, and then she gets uh, indoctrinated into the Pinkerton Agency, and more adventure <laughs> continues. So how's the fourth book coming along, Angel Justice? Where are you in that? I'm at chapter 24, mm-hmm. which is, uh, as I said, I posted today, is on the downhill slide into the climax. <laughs> Good. And I, since I am a pantser, you know what a pantser is. I most certainly do. There's no outlines in your room, right? None at all. I have no clue. Somebody said, well, I can't wait to find out how your, this book ends. I said, yeah, me too. Because <laughs> I don't know until, I, I, I really never figure out the ending till I'm almost two-thirds mm-hmm. of the way through. And because I do write uh, what I call twists within twists, yeah. that I never know, somehow I'm going to twist that ending when I get there. I just don't know what it's going to be until I'm about two-thirds of the way finished. And then it, I, I have awakened at night and grabbed my phone with the recorder and record whatever came to me in my sleep. I, if I don't, I'll forget it. We all will, you know. Mm-hmm. And But just stuff just comes to me. I have no idea from whence. It's just there, and I pay attention. And that's why I started writing, is that I, when I stopped acting, the creativity like to have, or the lack of exercise of my creativity mm-hmm. like to eat me alive. Yep, I get that. But no. Somebody asked me, they said, what do you do for rest and relaxation? I said, uh, write. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I enjoy writing. This sequestration we're all having to to go through is no different for me. Mm-hmm. I'm out here in the country, and I go to town maybe once a week, and that's it. Mm-hmm. The rest of the time, I write. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I get that, especially at night when these thoughts come to you. It's like your characters are, well, they are. They're real people. and, and uh, yeah, yeah, they are. They are. They, they are. I, they talk to me. Yes, I understand. I understand. Somebody asked how you how I wrote, and I said, well, I make a movie in my head, mm-hmm. and I just write down what they say and do. I love They're that. real. Yeah, they are real. They are real. I mean, you, there's so many facets to you. It's not just you, Ken Farmer, that we see physically standing there. there and not as far as everyone else as well, there's just so many facets to all of us that many people just don't take the time or pay attention or look inwards to explore. So... Uh, I'm sure all of I you. I think your key word there was pay attention. Yes, it is. I agree. I'm always open to my muse, if you will, because I never know, you know, when she's going to come up with something and and you know, you know, bang, here here it comes, and they say, "How do you get all your stories?" I don't know. I just kind of wait around. There they are. The portal's open, right? The portals open. (laughs) 
Well, I want to get into a little more technical thoughts here because we do have a lot of sure. authors that tune in. And so being that you are so prolific, I know they're going to want to know, how do you do it? I understand that so much of it is just natural. It's an extension. It just comes out. But maybe talk about that book writing process, where, when, how. I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, what do you do for writer's block? And I said, I don't have a clue because I never had it. But what I, what you do as as a writer again you know you got to pay attention to your yourself and you let the the characters tell the story and like I say I never know what they're going to do they surprise even me sometimes but here they come and like I say I, a a pantser is is what I call improvisation and and as an actor we had a little an exercise we always did in class, it was called improv. I would give the students the who, what, where, when, and sometimes why, and say, go. And they have to create a story and characters on the spot. And that, to me, is what writing is all about. I do it as improv, and all of a sudden the story will be there. I have a general story that I came up with for um, Angel Justice, my current, and all I had was the what, and that was I had read about what they call yellow slavery in the Old West, and that was uh, sex slaves of the Chinese women that they came over when all the Chinese came over to build the railroads. Well, also today we have white slavery, mm -hmm. sex slaves. They also had in the late 1800s red slavery where they would kidnap Indian uh, girls and sell them to bordellos. Mm -hmm. And I, that, that was my theme. I had no idea how I was going to do it, but I just started writing and with Silky and Haven, and it just flowed. I, I can't explain that, but I think what a lot of people, like I mentioned earlier, don't, don't do is they don't listen to themselves. Mm -hmm. They overthink it, which is when I teach writing classes and I've got one writer that I'm helping to finish up a, a, her second novel, and she is a retired English professor. And I just, it did my heart good to be able to rake her over the coals, even though she's one of my beta readers, and she rakes me over with the Oxford comma, which I hate, but I have to use it anyway. <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but I would rake her over the coals. I said, you're overthinking. You wrote in a half a page what I would write in two sentences. Mm -hmm. She would do her descriptions of somebody, you know, of what they're wearing down to the buttons. Yeah. I said, my God, let the reader imagine <laughs> some stuff. I call it spoon feeding. Yes. Do not spoon feed the reader. Let them work for it. Do not give them uh, five. Give them two plus one plus one plus one. Let them add it up. You know, you, you do too much, and there, it's not interesting to me. And so uh, her first book was just like 
Oh God, honey, you got you got to really cut this back. And we got through the second one, and uh, much better than the first. And the first part of the of her novel was wordy. And I said, "Cut this. You don't need that. Cut that. Cut that. Cut that." Don't tell them everything. Make them work for it. And to me, uh, from a writing standpoint, if it's going to be fresh to the reader, then it you have to write it fresh. Mm-hmm. Don't give them too much. That reminds me of accessorizing. They always say when you're getting ready to go out, look in the mirror and take one uh, thing off. Yeah. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Again, it's like... Acting, uh, Gene Hackman told me when I was doing uh, Uncommon Valor with him, uh, he said, you know, Kenny, this is a visual medium. If you can show it, don't say it. And she would have too much show, not enough tell. Excellent. Such good advice. We can go on for a long time. There's a lot more that I want to find out. We might have to do this again. Did we run out of time already? We're getting there. We are. And so I wanted to ask you if there's... God, I just started. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to ask if there's anything that we missed. I'm sure there is that you wanted to bring up, at least for today. Uh, No, I strictly rely on what you want to know. Okay. That, you know, I can't explain really how I work. I can just, I can tell you what I do. And as far as the system is that I I don't have a particular time. I do like to write in the morning because I find I'm fresher. Mm -hmm. So I write most of what I do in the morning. And in the afternoon is when I do most of my research. And I thank God for the Internet. I don't know if I've been able to to do this 30 years ago because I spend so much time researching. I like to pride myself and don't mean to say pride goeth before a fall, but (laughs) I do pride myself on being accurate if I'm writing historical fiction Western. Drives me crazy when I see writers and and a a very well-known Western writer, and I mean big-time Western writer, wrote uh, that he trotted his horse down the middle of the street at a shambling trot. And I read that and I said, oh, my God. There ain't no such thing as a shambling trot. Now, what does the word shamble mean? Unbalanced. There is a true trot called an amble. And it's a two-beat trot. And it is titled an amble Amble. trot. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. But he he had seen it somewhere and he, and just wrote shambling and I know three other oh. current writers who have duplicated that oh. because they saw him say it. Oh no! Yes, drives me crazy. Oh, I can see that. Yes, research is so key. No matter what genre you're writing in, you need to know what you're talking about because your readers probably do. And then there's no greater way to many of them do trust. Yeah. Many of them do. Yes. I, I had to tell my uh, writer that I'm working with, she wrote a uh, her novel, her latest one is a Civil War espionage. And I have a little, as a writer, I grew up on a horse. And that I had written in one of my books, he, 
He threw his saddle blanket upon the, the withers of the horse, lifted his saddle, set it down, reached under the gullet, and pulled a bubble up underneath the blanket, and then cinched down the um, latigo. And she said, what was this pull of bubble? I said, well, oh, I said, that's any writer knows that you reach under and you pull the blanket up into the gullet of the saddle, which is the arch mm-hmm. above the withers, so that when you suck the saddle down with the cinch, that you don't over tighten the blanket across, which will call, cause galls. Mm-hmm saddle sores on the horse and after a while the horse will get while you're if you're riding all day they get a little cranky and put your ass in the dirt and you wonder why because you did not put the blanket where it would not cause pressure points it's an automatic thing with anybody that rides you reach under you pull a bubble then you suck down the, the cinch well, we got some writing tips and some riding tips here. There you are. <laughs> writing and writing. You've got to say that slowly. We got it all today, folks. <laughs> <laughs> You're amazing, Ken. I love you. Where can folks go then to learn more about you, and where can they purchase all of your books? Well, they are all available on Amazon, both in, in uh, E and print, and eight of them are in audio that I did my own audio. I'm in the process of doing the audio books. And they can buy those uh, Ken Farmer on Amazon uh, or go to timbercreekpress.net if they want to get an autographed copy of the print. Now, the books are free, but you got to pay out the notes for my signature. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they're uh, they're autographed and uh, you know sent to um, mailed um, to whoever wants to get them. The same as I I sell them at, at festivals and so on. Uh, but if somebody happens to want my signature, God knows why, um, then I will send them a signed copy. But uh, the otherwise print and the e uh, or Kindle are available on. Amazon. All right. Excellent. So it's Ken Farmer. You can find him on Amazon or if you want a signed autographed copy, timbercreekpress.net. One little uh, quick thing. There is another Ken Farmer. Yes, I found him. On Amazon, but he writes uh, erotica Romanesque. In Rome. In in Rome. I found him. But it's erotic, and I don't write that crap. I I found him. It ain't me. If it's about Rome, then Caligula and all that, I don't do that. (laughs) You make me laugh. I found that. I'm like, well, this man is quite well-versed in it all. We go from Westerns to some weirdness in Rome. You go, Ken Farmer. (laughs) No, no. No, I, I just don't write erotica. I write clean family books. Excellent. You know, my, my sex scenes are what I call behind the door. There you go, as they should be, right? Oh, yeah. I don't, don't want to If see I it. have to explain it to you and you're over 12, <laughs> something's wrong. Oh, something's really wrong. Oh, my gosh. Any final words before we head out? As uh, Dean Martin used to say, keep those cards and letters coming, children. <laughs> 
uh, and just keep buying. You keep buying, I'll keep writing. Actually, I'll probably keep writing anyway. Whether there, any writer is going to write, yes. And it's just icing on the cake to have a fan base that buys the books. Very well said. And I, I love them to death. <laughs> Well, I kind of love you, too. It's been fun. Thank you so much for sharing you. And as I said, we'll have to do this again. Thanks so much, Ken. Yes, ma'am. Sure enjoyed the singing and the big orange drink.